So uh, it's good to be with y'all. And again, I recognize a lot of y'all, and I, I love coming out here to preach uh, with Jeff and with Mike and Robert and uh, Don and others. So and, and of course uh, um, Tom as well. So uh, what I want to do is I want to talk about regeneration. And if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Matthew 18? Now, this is a familiar passage. I want to read it, and then we'll have a prayer. So, Matthew 18. Now, we believe, do we not, the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, inspired Word of God, our only rule of faith and practice. Amen? Amen. Amen. I know y'all believe that. So, Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that in the name of Jesus, you would be our teacher. Father, we live in a world that's in great need and we know that Jesus is the only answer. Now, Lord, when we say that, it seems a rather trite statement. Oh, okay, Jesus is the answer. But, Lord, we really believe that. We know that. And, Father, we look around us and we see the world in such turmoil and such disarray, and the same is true in the church. And the question is, why is that? And Lord, I believe that largely the answer to that question is the topic of tonight's time together, the doctrine of regeneration. Father, we want to see Jesus. We want to love Him. We want to glorify Him. We want to proclaim Him to the nations, beginning right here in St. Louis. So would you help us, Holy Spirit? We might see Jesus. We might serve Him. We pray in His name. Amen. Amen. So let's give you, let me give you a little bit of a history lesson, first of all. So you go back to the, uh, to the 16th century, and uh, of course, God uses Martin Luther to begin the Reformation. There was things going on ahead of, before that, but that's really when it started, when he nailed the 95 Theses to the church door, the castle church in Wittenberg. And I was there a few years ago. In fact, I was there about a week or two before the celebration, like the 500th celebration. And um, forget the brother's name who's from England, does a lot of open-air preaching. He comes to the United States. Hamilton. Wasn't him, but somebody else. Young guy. But uh, anyway, we were together. And so, uh, I mean, there's all kind of people there in the church, you know, tourists and so forth. And this guy said, hey, why don't we do some preaching? I said, good idea. So we just start preaching right there. And the, uh, so I, I, I can, uh, now they can shut us down in about 10 minutes. So yeah, you can't do that in here. But at least we got to preach. So I can say I preached in Luther's church, you know. Um, but anyway, Luther was used of God powerfully 
to recover the doctrine of justification. Now, justification is a wonderful, glorious doctrine. God imputes the righteousness of Jesus to us by faith. We know that. We understand that. And there are many guys today, many preachers today, who do a wonderful job proclaiming justification. But I'm not... So in no way am I demeaning the doctrine of justification. It is vital, but it's not enough. And then we go on to the, and and also we could say that John Calvin added to that and really uh, helped develop the doctrine of justification. And then we get to the 17th century. That's the century of the Puritans. And the Puritans really did a marvelous job of developing the doctrine of sanctification, renewing the church back to the Word of God, uh, committing themselves and the people to gospel holiness, making an impact on the culture. All of that's good, but still something is missing. Now, that doesn't mean that people weren't getting saved and truly converted. Of course they were. There's a major movement of God, the Reformation, no doubt about it. But it's really not until you get into the 18th century that you begin to see the, more, the fullness of the gospel being proclaimed. And that's where you really begin to hear the doctrine of regeneration. Uh, I was looking at a sermon this afternoon that Whitfield preached on 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. And he's making a statement there. This is a doctrine that we find in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. But he says... Very few people really understand it, and very few people really preach it. And he said, "This is a this is not this is a tr- my word, not his. It's a truncated gospel. It's not the full gospel." So there was this great movement of God that started in the 1500s, then to the 1600s. You might remember that uh, Charles the First. There was the Puritan Revolution. And Charles I was uh, executed by Oliver Cromwell, and I think it was justified because he was seditious. He was undermining what what Cromwell was trying to do. Then about uh, 1658, Cromwell died rather unexpectedly, and his son was put in his place, but his son was not the leader that Oliver Cromwell was. And by that time, Charles II had been in exile in France. And Charles II was brought back, and so the monarchy was restored in 1660. And Charles II was, was, a, was a closet Roman Catholic. He supposedly converted to Roman Catholicism on his deathbed. He was born in 1630. He died in 1685. But when he became the king in 1660, he immediately began to retract all that had been happening in the Puritan Revolution. In fact, he was saying in the early 1660s that in order for you to, uh, a pastor to be in the church, he must submit himself to the king as the head of the church. Well, there's no Puritan, whether he was a Presbyterian, an Independent, or 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 an Episcopalian, or Anglican, is going to do that. And so he said, you've got until August of 1662. And 2,000 pastors would not do that. So they immediately were driven out of their churches. They call it the Act of Uniformity. And uh, it, was a, it was an infamous day. And from that point on, the gospel in England in the 17th century went south very rapidly. 
So by the 1685, when Charles II was uh, 65 years old, he died of a stroke. And his, he didn't have any legitimate children. They're all illegitimate. So he had to find, they had to find somebody to put a king in his place, and he put uh, one of his nephews, James II, in. And James II was ruthless. And you go back to the early, uh, the late 1630s, and the Scottish people made a, made a solemn oath and covenant amongst themselves. And you have to go all the way back to um, probably even 500 years before that when, you, when the, the real hostility between the British and the Scots came, to, came into being. It's been going on for centuries. And so uh, the solemn oath and covenant was a, was a mark of independence from England. James II was having nothing of it, and so he went after the Christians. He would bring his army into Scotland. They would track down these, these preachers, and they would oftentimes take the pastor. In fact, there's one very, very famous story. The pastor's out, uh, in, the, out in the, the wilderness area with a small congregation, and these, uh, these soldiers from James II are tracking these guys down like they're criminals. They find the pastor holding a worship service with his wife there, his five children, and a congregation of about 20 or 30 people. And they, they, uh, they take the pastor and they say, if you will denounce your commitment to your, your theology, then we'll let your, your wife and children go. If not... We're going to kill them right now. He said, I can't, I can't recant. So he watched as they drowned his wife and five children. My point here is, is that the Scottish people called that the killing time. And James II absolutely ravaged Christianity. So by the late 1600s, Christianity was all but gone in England, Scotland, and Wales. Almost totally eradicated. And uh, so by the early 1700s, England especially was utterly debauched. Crime was so bad that there were, in order to gain control of the people, there were 13 different crimes that were punishable by death. There's a story of a 12-year-old poverty-stricken boy, hungry, stealing a loaf of bread, and he was hanged in the public square. That's how bad it was. The people were in poverty, and in order to make money, they would manufacture gin. And one out of three homes made and sold gin. They're all just a bunch of drunkards. Unbelievable debauchery. And they had fallen that quickly within 50 years. And then, in 1735, George Whitfield, who was 21 years old, was converted and, uh, in, at Oxford. And then within two months, Daniel Rowland, also 21, who was an Anglican preacher, he wasn't converted at the time, and Howell Harris, who was a teacher, age 21, all were converted within a couple of weeks of each other, and God used those men mightily. But here's the point I want you to, I want you to understand. They preached, you must be born again. That's what that message, and that, that inculcates everything else about justification, sanctification. They preached you must be born again. Now, I've not been able to confirm this story. It could be anecdotal, 
So keep that in mind. But the story goes is that Whitfield was preaching somewhere in New England area, and he, was, he would go into a town, and sometimes he'd stay for several days or weeks and preach in the open air. These guys were all open-air preachers, by the way, every one of them. And so, uh, so uh, Whitfield's preaching, and he's preaching, you must be born again. The second day, you must be born again. The third day, you must be born again. Finally, after about 10 days of hearing sermons on regeneration, somebody walked up to him and said, Mr. Whitfield, may I ask you a question? Yes, go right ahead. He said, why do you preach that we must be born again? He says, because you must be born again. <laughs> and it's so vital. That's what's missing today. I'm going to hit more on that in a moment. But this is a classic passage on this idea of regeneration. So let me set the stage for you here. So if you, if, you, if you remember, you look back, Matthew 16 and 17, Peter is a major player in this particular juncture of the book. Maybe eight or ten times he's mentioned. He's the major guy right here. And so, so Jesus is with his disciples, and they're starting to wonder. I mean, you just see the sin in these guys, all right? I mean, they've been walking with Jesus for a while. You'd think they got it figured out, right? So they're, they're, we don't know this for sure, but if you, if you look at the context of all this mentioning of Peter, you know they're thinking, who's going to be the greatest of the kingdom? It's got to be one of us. I mean, obviously, where would you, he picked us. He's given us apostolic authority. No doubt it's going to be one of us. But, you know, I wonder if it's going to be that Peter guy. Jesus has spent a lot of time with him. So look at verse 1 of chapter 18. At that time, what? After all that's been happening in Matthew 17, the transfiguration, uh, demons being cast out and so forth. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, now watch this. I want you to notice the presumption. <laughs> Look at this. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We're presuming it's one of us. I mean, why else would they ask the question? Sinful presumption. And... When he speaks about the kingdom of heaven, what he means there is, you remember in, in uh, Colossians 1, in Ephesians 1, it says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into what? The kingdom of His beloved Son. The kingdom of God encapsulates a lot of things. It's the rule and reign of Christ. There's the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom is in your midst. He said the kingdom's coming. It's the rule and reign of Jesus, but it's also being taken out of darkness, sin, destruction, misery on the road to hell, being taken out of that and being placed into the rule and reign of Jesus where he indwells you by the Holy Spirit, where he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll always be with you. That's the great hope we have. And one day when Christ comes, when we die, we go to be with him. When he comes back again, we're with him on the new earth. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of heaven. By the way, Matthew refers to it as the kingdom of heaven almost exclusively. The other gospels call it the kingdom of God. Synonymous. Means, basically means the same thing. So he says, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who asks a question like that? Well, if you were there and I was there, you'd probably do the same thing. 
That's who we, you know, there's a, there's a presumption, but there's also pride. Pride is a horrible thing. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, even a debauched person hates to see pride in somebody else. It's a despicable sin, and we all battle it to some degree or another. So there's presumption here, and then there is, um, there's pride, and there's also just a sinful ambition. You know, we got to be the greatest. Who is it, Jesus? And then you'll notice that he gives the answer in verse 2, in verse 3. So Jesus would often use object lessons, right? Here's another classic object lesson. It says, Jesus called a child to himself and set him before them. So picture this. The child's probably two or three, four years old, something like that. Maybe the age of some of yours over here. And so he puts this child in front of the disciples. And then he said, then he said, uh, truly, I say to you. Now, when you see the word truly, amen, I was like, okay, he's getting ready to say something really, really important. Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted, unless you're turned, Unless something major happens to you. And you become like children. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not that perhaps you might not. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. No, 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 no. He's very clear. Unless you're converted and become like children. You ain't going to make it. Now. That begs a very important question. What is it about a child that causes Jesus to use such a graphic object lesson? Now, a lot of commentators talk about that, and they say, well, you know, because children are innocent. Well, I've got grandchildren. They're not innocent. <laughs> you know? Uh, but they are. A lot of times, they're they're. There's, there's no guile with them. You know, they'll tell you what they think, you know, and all that. But there's a, more, there's a deeper reason. Think about it like this. Let me, let me put it this way. We have an adopted grandchild from uh, Africa. Now, he doesn't know this, and, and so we, I'm not sure we're going to tell him. But when he was born, his mother left him on a garbage dump to die, like at two or three days old. Did you read recently about this mother putting her child in the, in the garbage bin? You remember reading about that? No, the, the police saw the child and saved the child. Here's my point. Jesus is using this analogy of a child because a one-day-old child, a ten-day-old child, a two-year-old child is utterly helpless. There's no way that my grandson could have survived on his own. It's not like he's going to get up, find himself a job, and take care of himself when he's two days old. He's not going to do it when he's two years old. He's not going to be able to do it when he's eight years old. You get the point? And Jesus is saying, wait a second, you guys are all about presuming on your greatness. You're all about your pride. You're all about your selfish ambition. I want you to understand it's not just about humility. Guys, you can't make it happen. You're utterly helpless. 
That's what he's after. No, no, none of this vestiges of, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, we're not, we're not okay. None of that. He says, you're not going to make the kingdom of God unless you're like a child, which means unless you realize you are helpless. You can't do anything without me. That's what he says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a hard lesson for people to learn. That's a hard lesson for Christians to learn. I'll have more to say about this conversion idea in a moment. But keep that in your mind for right now. You're not going to make it. There's nobody in this city, no matter how good they are, no matter how moral they are, no matter how much they go to church and give back to the community and all that kind of stuff, nobody's going to make it unless they become like a child, and they're not going to come like a child unless they're converted. Now, in verses 4 through 6, you see the application. Verse 4 is about, about me, about you. Verse 5 is about other people. And then verse 6 is a warning. So notice this, verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So how, how am I going to be great in the kingdom of heaven? If I humble myself like a little child. If I get to the point where I can say, you know, I can't do anything by myself. Nothing. We might say, now hold on just a second. I'm in good health. I can get up. I can go to work. I can do this. Yeah, see, I look, okay, I got the spiritual side of this thing. But as far as being able to do my job, I'm a can-do person. I can make it happen. No, you can't. You can't do anything. But even more importantly, you cannot do anything to save yourself. Now, you know all that. But it's amazing how many people in the church don't get that. And you'll see why in a moment why that's important. So the only way you can ever be great is to humble yourself. You know what that means? Paul put it this way. Do nothing from a spirit of selfishness and empty conceit. So, men, I don't know about you, but there are times living with my wife for 48 years, I just want my way. Anybody ever? You know? It's amazing how we want to do what we want to do. You've got to humble yourself if you're going to be great. And then in verse 5, is about other people. Whoever then receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, a little child, he's saying she's talking about believers, but let me give you an example. And I, I hate to bring this up. But last Friday, <clears throat> Winnie and I went to our, our grandchildren's um, grandparents' day. They go to Briarwood Christian School. At least my oldest son's kids go there. So, great program. And our uh, fifth grade grandson and our first grader, the first grader is the adopted boy from Africa. So we went to the program, great program and all that. So afterwards, we're going to get them something to eat. You know, grandparents, you got to spoil your grandkids, right? I mean, you got to, you know, get them stuff. So we were going to try to find a, a place to go eat some lunch. 
so we went into um, to one of these hamburger places, but she, but they, they weren't open yet. It was like 11 o'clock. So we went around to the drive-thru, and the woman I was going to order, and I ordered mine first, and she goes, is that it? And I got short with her. I said, no, I got four more people in the car. And uh, my grandkids are sitting in the back seat. Now, I apologize to them, and I ask for forgiveness. And you know, kids are amazing how they can feel. Oh, it's okay, Oma, don't worry about it. It was sinful. And I started thinking about that passage where um, James says, uh, uh, in, in, um, in James chapter 1, he's talking there about... Um, uh, let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation. This was an older woman. When I got back around, this is an older woman working a minimum wage job, and I'm giving her a hard time. It, it pierced my heart. It was sinful. Sinful. And I bring that up because I don't know if she's a Christian or not, but, you know, it says... Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I failed the test, you see. And then in verse 6, there's a severe warning. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone, millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You talk about a vivid picture here. You know what a millstone was, right? That's how they would grind the meal and so forth. Have one of these wrapped around your neck. They throw it into the water, what's going to happen? You're going straight to the bottom. I've been involved in a ministry in another country where the leader is a phenomenal writer, leader, preacher, one of the most amazing men I've ever known. About three years ago, I started hearing that he had committed adultery. And I was on the board. So I said, no, please, no, no, God, I, I can't, I, I, you know. And I did some preliminary investigation. I didn't find anything. I said, okay, good, that's over. Well, it wasn't over. But this time last year, it came back again. And, and the evidence began to mount. And I remember being on a Zoom call with him. And I was said, I want to read you some verses. I said, I said, um, and I, I started reading these verses about Hebrews 10. Uh, you know, uh, all these verses, false prophets and, you know, all this sort of thing. And I said, this is pretty daunting stuff, don't you think? He goes, yeah. I said, you know, in other words, what it says is you could be a preacher and you could be on the road to hell if you're, if you're a false prophet, if you're a liar. I said, what do you think about that? He goes, yeah, that'd be bad if it was true. But two months later, he admitted it. The only reason he admitted it was because his son heard the, overheard the conversation. We tried to remove him from his ministry. He's still going. I honestly fear for his soul. I'm going to tell you something. This guy knows the Bible 
backwards and forwards. He knows his theology. He knows his history. And I'm not even talking about Ravi Zacharias. We know about that one. I mean, this, this, this ought to cause fear and trembling. Jesus is playing hardball here. If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, and I promise you, I've got friends, younger guys who said, I'm, I'm devastated by this Robbie Zacharias thing. I mean, this is killing me. And the same thing is true of this, my friend in this other country. It's a warning for all of us. And the reason, listen, the reason men fall into this sin is because of pride. I'm too big to fail. This guy is continuing his ministry because he says, nobody else can do it. If I, if I walk away, it's going to fail. I said, I said to him, you should have thought about that before you did what you did. Pride. It's a killer. And Jesus is saying, unless you're converted and become like this child, you're not going to make it. So here's the one thing I want you to get. The one-liner, okay? It's this. Unless you're born again. You? And I'm assuming everybody here is. But unless you're born again, you're not going to make the kingdom of God. You might make a decision for Jesus. You might have nice feelings about Jesus. You might have joined a nice church. But if you're, not, if you're not converted, you're not going to make it. And your neighbors and family members are not going to make it either. So, what does that mean? We've got a problem. We've got a problem in this world. And the problem is sin. Right? I don't think, and I don't think most of it, I think y'all do, because you, you get solid teaching here. But most followers of Jesus in this country have no real understanding of the hideous depth and prevailing nature of sin. I'm talking, first of all, about original sin. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, Paul says that uh, as death came upon one man, it came upon all because we all sinned. We all sinned in Adam. He was our father. His sin is imputed to us. And later on in Romans 5, Paul goes on to say, yes, Adam's sin was imputed to us, but also Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. But sin, indwelling sin, actual sin, you know the story. We go back to Genesis 3, then in Genesis 4, uh, Cain kills Abel, then there's the flood where the people are only doing evil continually and God wipes them out. Then in uh, chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, there's presumption and pride and selfish, sinful ambition again. And you see this repeated throughout the Bible. And so you see, you see Jesus dealing with it. And then you come to Paul's letters in Romans 1. You know the story. He says... Uh, and even though they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, evil, greed, malice, envy, slander. They're abusive to their parents. They're un- untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them but heart- give hearty approval to those who practice them. Then he goes on in chapter 3. He says, there's nobody righteous. None. 
You know, in chapter 1, he's talking about these wicked, vile people. In chapter 2, the first part, he's talking about moral people. The last part of chapter 2, he's talking about religious people. Then he sums it all up. He says, there's nobody righteous, not even one. He says, listen, I know y'all know this, but I want you to understand it in fresh and anew. I want you to understand you and I were helpless. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the way it is in our neighborhoods. These people are going to preach to tomorrow. They're helpless. Now they're responsible for God to repent and believe the gospel. They can't do it. Why? Paul says, none understand. None seek for God. All have turned aside together. They've all become useless. There's not one righteous. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their lips they keep deceiving. The poison of asps are under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. The path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, guys, when you go out and preach, that's what strikes me the most. We're out there preaching sin, hell, judgment, the glory, the beauty of ex- and excellency of Jesus, and there's no fear, right? I mean, here we are. We're, we're pouring out our hearts to these people, and we know that they're on the road to hell, and they're not the least bit bothered by it. It's astonishing to me. But you know what? I used to be the same way, and so did you. We've got to get a fresh understanding, an experiential understanding of the absolute hopelessness of people without Jesus. It goes like this. People are always trying to solve things and, and make them better. So now we've got psychotherapy, psychothera- psychotherapeutic gospel. You know, we want to be touchy-feely. We want to help people with their emotions and that sort of thing. So we bring that into Christianity. And then we think, okay, let's bring in philosophy. So you've got the philosophers with the particular views. You know, you know how all this goes. Then you've got your your education uh, play, you know, universities, and they've all got ideas about how to make the world better. These guys over at Davos in Switzerland, their 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 whole idea is we're the elites, we know what's best, we're gonna use artificial intelligence to change the world. And so there's always efforts by politicians, by educators, by philosophers, by athletes, by business people. Woke, Woke Inc. is a good book that deals with the whole thing. These businesses are getting to a place where they're, they're not worried about the stockholder. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to be all about inclusion and all this sort of thing. This is These are the efforts that the world has to try to make things better. And if it wasn't so sad it would be hilarious i mean they come up with something new all the time and it always is the same way it's not working we've got to see the absolute poverty and inability of anybody to believe the gospel so what's the remedy Unless you're converted and become like children, you'll not make the kingdom of heaven. Now, the word converted has the idea, uh, those who know about the order of salvation, we talk about conversion. Conversion means 
You repent and believe the gospel. But now the question is, how are you able to repent and believe the gospel? Some people who have more of a man-centered approach would say, now there still is within every person some latent ability to figure it all out and to make a decision for Jesus. That's what some say. But that's impossible. Why? Because I just told you, none understand. Nobody's seeking God. So the only way you can be converted, the only way that you can see your sin, whoa, I'm going in the wrong direction. I want to run after Jesus. I want to trust Jesus. The only way you can do that if you're dead in your trespasses and sins is for God to do a miraculous work of grace, which we call regeneration. No other way. And regeneration is not merely something Jesus taught in John 3. He did teach Nicodemus that. Nicodemus, unless you're born from above, you're not going to make it. Peter said the same thing, being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But by the way, this is all throughout the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel 19, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take out the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. That's regeneration. I like to put it this way. You and I were born with a corrupt, wicked, perverse, godless heart. Psalm 58 says, They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears so it does not hear the voice of the charmer or the skillful caster of spells. In other words, I refer to that wicked heart that we were all born with as a cobra heart. And I like that terminology because it's so vivid. When I go to India or Africa and I'll be sharing the gospel with people, I'll say, you were born just like I was with a cobra heart. I said, have you ever seen a cobra before? They all, every one of them says, oh yes, I saw one yesterday. <laughs> Look, I don't like little green snakes, let alone a cobra. They're all over the place over there. Thankfully, I hadn't seen one, but they're there. But I find it fascinating that, that David uses that term, you have a cobra heart. Because if you get bit by one of those things, you're dead in 30 minutes. Unless you got the antidote. And here's what happens in regeneration. God, by a miracle of His grace, comes to us like a heart transplant and opens us up spiritually and takes out the wicked heart that loves sin and hates God. Never forget that. Until you're born again, you really hate God. Now, the reason we know that if we preach on the street, listen, you could be on the street, you could preach about Muhammad, you could preach about LeBron James, you could preach about any of those guys, nobody's going to bother you at all. But what happens, guys, when you start mentioning Jesus? They go nuts. What is it about the name of Jesus? They hate him, just like I hated him. Now, my wife tells a story, this is pretty shocking, because she's such a sweet, nice person, moral person. But she says, when she was 10 years old, she remembers walking through the living room and her parents 
are watching Billy Graham on the TV. She walks through and says, I hate that guy. A 10-year-old kid. And her sister's five years older than her, and when her sister was like 15, they had the same bedroom. Jay and her sister would get on her knees and pray before she went to bed. Winnie at 10 years old said, what are you, what are you doing? Who are you praying to? She's a nice person, but she had a corrupt, wicked heart. And when she was 16 years old, she was at the beach. Somebody said, you mind if I share this little booklet with you, Four Spiritual Laws? She goes, yeah, it'd be great. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. By the way, I, I, love, the, I love the comic. I don't know if it's actually a comic or not, but a friend told me this years ago. So picture this, that uh, there's the flood. Waters are rising. Animals are dead everywhere. People are crying out for mercy. And then somebody notices there's about to be drowned in the flood. They notice on the back of the ark a bumper sticker says, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> a little late for that. But, but when he's at the, at the beach, oh, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay, that's great. And then she goes, second law is you're a sinner. She goes, no, no not, not me. I'm not a sinner. Not me. And she honestly thought that. She goes, I don't have sex. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't swear. I'm a good person. Two years later, God showed her how wicked her heart was. You see, that's what's got to happen. Regeneration means that God takes out the heart that loves sin and hates God and does this amazing transplant, and He puts in you the heart of Jesus in regenerating grace. It's all the grace of God. Probably my favorite passage on that is in Titus 3. He says, uh, When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind came, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Actually, in the Greek text, He saved us is put at the end of the sentence for the sake of emphasis, impact. We're saved, not by the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Do you get that? Do you understand? It's the sheer mercy of God that anybody saved. But by His mercy, according to the washing of regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. What he means there is, you know, the Old Testament, there's all these ritual washings, right? He said, no, that's not going to get it done. All that religious activity of the past, at best, was, a for, was looking ahead. It's not by that. It's the washing of regeneration. God does the work. God takes out the wicked heart and changes you on the inside. And when that happens, everything changes. Now you've got regeneration. Now justification begins to mean something, as does sanctification. A couple of years ago, a very prominent uh, scholar, pastor, was speaking at um, um, a conference in England, in London, on uh, homosexuality. And my wife, we know, we know this guy very well, he's very well known. And uh, I said, oh, we, here's the three lectures, why don't we listen to him? Because I know what he's going to say, he's, he's going to sell out. On, on this issue. I said, well, we don't know that. Let's, let's, let's listen. We're, I was going to preach somewhere, so we listened to him. And the first one, he's very scholarly. He's quoting this philosopher and that philosopher and that historian and so forth. And it's very it's very entertaining. You know, it's really very, very erudite. It's fun to listen to. 
The second one was about the same. Then the third one, he got into the gospel. He did an amazing job on the doctrine of justification. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And as it often is with these kind of guys, it's not what he said, it's what he didn't say. See, he's speaking to a room full of homosexuals. What, what my brother here would have said is homosexuality is sin, and it, whether, whatever your sin is, you got to repent. Am I right, guys? That's not what happened. And he left out the doctrine of just, of regeneration. That's the change. If anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So that's got to happen. There's got to be regeneration by the mercy of God. The result is that you'll see societal impact. You'll see families changed. You'll see... Communities changed. And uh, some of you know that uh, we were talking about this today, that uh, this Memorial Presbyterian Church here in St. Louis was sort of ground zero for the same-sex attraction model that's now in my former denomination, the PCA. And uh, I wrote an article back in 2018 that kind of went, as they say, viral. It's kind of started the whole controversy. And this was like May of 2018. And we're having our big national meeting in June. So I said, you know, I need to reach out to this pastor. I need to get with him. So I set up a time to see him at the meeting. And I said, uh, we're talking, we obviously disagreed. He, he thinks you can be um, homosexual as long as you don't act on it. And uh, you're you're good to go. And so we're listening there. I said, I said, you know what, Greg? I said, here's what I think. I think the problems we're having in the PCA about this particular issue, but about a lot of other issues, are simply because many of our people, it seems to me, are not real Christians. He said, how can you say that? I said, because we preach a justification-only gospel. And again. I love the doctrine of justification. It's not enough. And I went into the whole thing of regeneration. Theologically, he knew that. I said, listen, until we're born again, we're not going to change. You can't change. At best, you'll exchange one sin for another and become prideful. Okay, I kicked this one, but now I got this one. You can't can't break it. There's always going to be something holding you down. I said, but when you're born again, you change. I said, I've, I've ministered to homosexuals who've been converted and their lives have been drastically changed. Y'all remember a couple of years ago when we had Laura here? Remember that girl that was a transgender? Remember that? You know she's married now, right? It's beautiful. It's just amazing. And there's the gospel. There's the power of God. That's what changes people. Regeneration. So I said to him, I've seen people change. He goes, nah, you know, I never really have seen anybody anybody change. That's a liberal, unbelieving position. So I'm going to close with this. What's the solution? You got to be born again. You cannot make it happen. You're powerless to make it happen. Now, 
We're to preach. We're to evangelize. Yes, by all means. God's got to do it. So that means don't get discouraged if you don't see people saved. But on the other hand, don't say, okay, you know, you win some, you lose some. It's not a big deal. Uh, you know, I'm in. I'm not worried about, you know, I can't really worry about anybody else. I'm in. No. It ought to break our hearts. And I know it does these brothers. When we're out preaching and people mock and they don't. It, we ought to weep over that. We ought to weep. And I don't always weep over them, but I should. Sometimes I get mad at them. Well, they're just doing what, that's what, they're just doing what unbelieving people do. What I'm saying to you is, realize you can't make it happen, but you still go. And this church is great about that. You keep, you keep going and you give the word and you trust God to do his work. Always call people to faith by all means. By all means. You pray and you preach and you wait on God. All right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. We pray now that you'd give us a little break here. We'll try to finish up for with a few minutes in a little bit. But thank you for this time. And Lord, drive this home to us that unless we're born again, we will not make the kingdom of heaven. And Lord, drive that deeply into our hearts concerning friends and family members whom we know. Give us a burden for souls, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.